I'm back. How are you? Good, good. Good to see you. Uh, good to be seen by you. If you are watching uh, in the chapel this morning, also if you are watching uh, also up north at our north campus, good morning to you as well. Hope that uh, you have a great service this morning, chapel and north campus. Well, my name is R.D., and I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it is really Really a joy to be with you. If you have a Bible, you can grab it and turn to the book of Colossians. Turn to the book of Colossians. If you uh, weren't here last week, or you were here last week and you have already forgotten what I said then, uh, and I had forgotten a lot of it, but uh, even by preaching it, just a quick reminder that we're in a series in the book of Colossians. And just to briefly trace out last week, Paul is writing a letter to a group of young Christians in the city of Colossae, which is in modern day Turkey. And it's a new church. It's a small church. They're trying to find out how to follow Jesus in a difficult context. And there've been people that have come into the church who have said, we believe in Jesus and we believe in grace, but we think that there needs to be a bit more than Jesus and a bit more than grace in order for you to be fully pleasing to the Lord. So it's grace, yes, and it's Jesus, yes, but there's also you need need more. And what Paul wants to say over and over again through this letter is whenever you add anything to Jesus, you empty him of his power. And whenever you add anything to grace, you actually subtract from it. And so the math is this, Jesus plus nothing equals absolutely everything. And that's the message of the book of Colossians. And so Paul, last week, ends the first section here in verse 14, talking about Jesus, who has rescued us from darkness. He's brought us, he's brought us into life. Through him, we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And then in the next section, verses 15 through 20 especially, and we'll work through 23 and, and hit 28 and 29 if we get there. We'll see what happens. But 15 through 20 are... How can I put it? This, this, friends, this is the Mount Everest. <laughs> this, this is the peak. This is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, New Testament passage because you, Paul has just talked about what Jesus does. And then he breaks out into just exaltation of who Jesus is in these next verses. And so verses 15 through 20, many people think were actually an early poem or a hymn that was circulating in the church at that time. And Paul has taken this poem and written it down to the Colossians, and he's added maybe a few lines here and there to contextualize it for them. But likely already within three decades of the life and death of Jesus, the early Christians are already proclaiming that Jesus Christ was not only a teacher, not only a savior, but the creator of the whole world within 30 years of his life and death. That's as old as me. Not a lot of time. And they're already saying he wasn't just savior. That's pretty amazing. I've got a bigger one for you. He threw the stars into their very existence. That's the Jesus that we worship. And so with this, are you ready to climb Everest? Are you ready to go? Let's do it. Verse 15. The sun is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And so already in, in the first part of this first verse, we can just stop here and we could spend our whole time here and we will spend a chunk here because it's such a important verse. The sun is the image of the invisible God. This, this just verse right here is going to help us answer two questions. One, who is God? And second, secondly, who are humans supposed to be? Who is God? 
And who are humans supposed to be? So the first thing here is that a question that was certainly popular in the first century, and it's still very popular now, is who is God? And what is God like? And how do you know who God is? And how do you know what God is like? And in the first century, there were many versions of God or what God was like or who God was. And in in all of those, or many of those, God was powerful and strong and mighty. And he was above and beyond everything. He was not weak or small. He was big, strong. God of the the sun or the sky. All of these were popular in the first century. And Paul is obviously saying, yes, Jesus Christ is strong and mighty and powerful, but he's also vulnerable and hanging out with sinners and lepers and the poor and women. Well, there's never quite been a God like that. Yes, yes, powerful and mighty, but also weak and vulnerable. Never heard of a God like that. What, what type of God is this? And what Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ is the perfect representation of God. If you want to know who God is and what God is like, Paul says, look at Jesus Christ. That is who God is. That is who God is. And so we think of who God is, and we just have to read the Gospels. And there you see Jesus hanging out with all kinds of people who he shouldn't be hanging out with if he were truly a God and above people. But no, this God actually gets dirty with people. He he comes near people. He incarnates himself in the person of Jesus so he can actually walk among us. And Paul says, that's who God is. That's what God is like. And so to the answer, if we, if we have questions or doubts about who is God, what type of God it is, all we have to do is look at Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see this is who God is. Everything that he does, every healing, every miracle, his tears, this is who God is. This is what the true God is like. He is invisible, but Jesus Christ has made him visible. But not only that, which is huge and And amazing, does Jesus Christ show us who the true God is? He also shows us who true humans are supposed to be. Because maybe you remember this verse from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1.27, which says that God made male and female in his image. God made Adam and Eve in God's image. And since then, he's made every single person in the image of God. Well, we also see that language here, that the Son is also the image of God. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that Not only does Jesus show us who God is, but Jesus shows us how to be truly human. Jesus shows shows us what it's looked like to actually live out the image of God. So Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, which means two things, that they were made to love and serve and know God, that they have dignity and worth because they're made in his image. But it also meant that they were supposed to reflect God into the world. That, That people would look at them, right, for the argument's sake, as if, right, I represent my parents, And so when I go walk around or behave, people then ask who my parents are and think I'm a representative of my parents for good and bad. (laughs) In the same way, Adam and Eve are supposed to reflect their parent. And so whatever they do, however they live, whatever they're doing is a reflection on who God is. But they they were unable to reflect God purely because of sin and rebellion. They rebelled against God. And all since that time, from every person born after Adam and Eve, people were unable to fully be human again and live out the image of God. They were fractured and broken like a broken mirror. They couldn't see themselves and they couldn't see God. But Jesus Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection, is restoring the image of God in our lives so we can actually bear God's image in the world again. So when people look at Christians, they could actually get a a picture of who God is that all that God is doing through Jesus is renewing and restoring his image in us. Jesus helps us get our humanity back that we so long for. 
Colossians 3.10, we'll get there in a few weeks, but it just says this. Talking about putting on the new self, Paul writes this, and, and we have put on the new self. And this new self, the Christian, is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. The new self, if you're a Christian, if you come to faith in Christ, you are being renewed day by day by day into the image of God. And so already in one half of one verse, Paul has said two profound things. Jesus Christ shows us who God is, and Jesus Christ helps us get our humanity back. He does all of that by his life and his ministry. Well, Paul, Paul goes on to describe Jesus Christ, and he says this, the next section of verses is going to talk about Jesus Christ's role in all of creation. The Son of the, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, all, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So here we have the height of the heights. We have Jesus Christ's central role in creation, that everything was made in him and through him and for him. Everything made has been made through Jesus Christ, for him and for his glory. <clears throat> when Paul says that Jesus Christ here is the firstborn over all creation, he doesn't mean that Jesus Christ was born or that he was created. That's not what that means. It means, firstborn means that he had the supreme rank, that he was over all creation. Paul says he's the firstborn over all creation, not the firstborn in creation. He's not a part of creation. He stands outside of it, creating all things through his power. He has the supreme rank. He is over everything in all creation. He has the honor that no one else shares, Jesus Christ does, by who he is as God himself. And then Paul goes on this beautiful picture here where he says, everything is created through him. And he says, things in heaven and earth and visible and invisible things, which is Paul's long way of saying everything. <laughs> everything, things you can see, things you cannot see. Whatever you look at, Jesus Christ, by his power, created it. God created it through him. Everything. There's not one thing that has ever been made that was not made through Jesus Christ. That's who he is. And then Paul goes and he says this, which may be curious, and we don't use words like these very much, but then he says, not only was everything made, heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, but also thrones and powers and rulers and authorities, which is Paul's way of talking about the spiritual realm, that angels and, and what would become actually Satan, that they're actually, we believe as Christians, it's not just everything we see that is ultimate reality. But there is a greater spiritual reality. And what Paul is saying is that even everything you see, all the angels, everything in, in, in the heavens was created by God through Jesus Christ. But now everything, not everything remains submitted to him. Things have rebelled against him, which is how we have Satan, which is why we have evil and darkness in the world. So on one hand, Paul is saying all the powers, all the authorities, all the kings of all time were made through and for Jesus Christ, but not all of them serve and love Jesus Christ as they should. They rebelled against him, but do not lose hope because Jesus Christ still made them and they're all on a leash. They do not have the power that he has because he made them. Sin runs rampant in the world because of our sin, right? It runs rampant because of us. Yet Jesus Christ says, I made it all. You don't have to be afraid. There will be tough times. There will be difficulty. There is evil. There is darkness in the world. It starts in our hearts, but it spreads out through nations and people and corporations. And there is a real enemy who prowls around. And he says, take heart. It was all made through me. And one day it will all submit to me. One day again, it will all submit to me. 
So everything is made, everything is made through him and, and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So here, Jesus Christ is the glue that holds the entire universe together. All the chaos of the universe finds its coherence in Jesus Christ. The universe is not held together by a force, by a virtue. It's held together by a person. Jesus Christ holds the entire universe together by his fingernail. <laughs> right? That, he, he does it. And so what does that mean? It means this. Jesus Christ holds the whole world together so you don't have to. Jesus Christ holds everything together so you don't have to. You don't have to be in control. You don't have to be in charge because he is. He's on the throne. Jesus Christ is never sleeping on the throne. He's never surprised by anything that happens in your life or anything that happens in the world. He already knows it. He already knows it. And so I was thinking of this. I was studying this passage this week. And uh, on uh, Wednesday, uh, late in the day, long day, and uh, I got a text from my, from my wife, 435, and, and I was trying to work on the passage, and, and she just texted me and said, I think something's wrong with, with Maisie, who's one of our daughters. She's pale. She's kind of shaking back and forth. She won't eat, which is a big sign something's wrong with Maisie because that girl can put food away. And so it's like she won't go in the pool, all of these things. And so I get the text. And I'm in a meeting, and I'm like, okay, well, I got I to gotta go. And so I get in the car, and she's like, she just threw up. And so I, I got in the car, and as a, a parent, I, my, my thoughts went to worse things first. I'm just thinking, what, 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 if it's, what if it's this, or what if it's that, or what if we have to go to the hospital? And I really, at one point, I thought, what if today is the day that we find out there's something really wrong with her, and we didn't know, and today is the day that everything in my life changes. And as I'm driving down Cottage Grove Road, I just, I just stopped, not driving the car, but as I was driving the car, and a peace came over me, and I just thought this. I thought, Jesus Christ holds everything together, so I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be anxious. Jesus Christ holds the atoms which hold the universe together, and he holds my daughter's heartbeat in his hand. And her heart does not beat unless he says beat. And it stops beating the second he says stop. Why? Because he holds everything together, so we don't have to. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to worry. It doesn't mean storms won't come. The whole point is storms will. Will you be anxious in them or will you trust him in them? The Bible never says God will not give you more than you can handle. The Bible says God will. <laughs> so in your inability to handle it, you would trust in him who holds everything together by the word of his power. That's what Paul's talking about here. And the Colossians need to hear this as much as we did because they're suffering, they're wondering. Their lives are out of control sometimes, like all of ours are. And a comeback, Jesus at the center of it all, yes and amen. Live it, believe it. The storm may be raging, but we're in the eye of the storm because we're with him. It's such a powerful passage here. And so Paul, one final application here is that he says everything in the universe is for one purpose, it's for the glory of Jesus. And that shapes how we should think about everything we're doing and how we live our life. Are you living your life ultimately for the purpose, for the praise of Jesus Christ? Because you were made just like the trees and the dogs and the rocks to glorify him. <laughs> All of it is made. And, and if we are not, we are made to glorify Jesus. And if we're, not, if we're not glorifying him, then there's chaos. Then there's breakdown. Then there's problems. 
That's why Paul is saying he has to be at the center, not just in your thinking, but in how you live, that you would know the purpose for which you're made as a human being, which is to glorify Jesus. And then in glorifying Jesus, your life finds coherence and glue and meaning and purpose. And so Paul here is on the peaks talking about the role of Jesus in all of creation. And now he's going to shift to talking about the church here in verse 18. So he holds it all together. Everything is made in him and through him and for him. And he starts talking about his role in the church, verse 18. He says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now this is a interesting verse because Paul has just talked about the role of Jesus Christ in creating everything. And then he starts talking about the church which may seem like, what, I'm not, I mean, of course the church is, yes, well and good, but why is it here? Why is Paul talking about it now? Here's what I think. Paul, when Paul says here that Jesus Christ is the head of the body, of the church, the body is the metaphor, it's Jesus' body that the church is called. So Door Creek Church is part of the body of Jesus, part of his body in the world. And when the Greek word here for, for head has two meanings. The first meaning is authority. The first meaning is that Jesus Christ is the authority of the church. I'm not the leader of this church, Thank Jesus himself, right? He is the leader. He is the authority of this church. We submit everything to him in how we try and do church. And so there's that piece of it, that he is the head, the authority, the leader of the church. But there's another meaning here, which is likely more what Paul's meaning here. And that word is source. That Jesus Christ is not, not, not he is the authority of the church, but he's also the source of the church. He's the beginning of the church. Another word for beginning is Genesis that Jesus Christ founded and began the church. Just as, Jesus, that, just as everything in creation was made through him, so the church is made through Jesus. He is the leader of it. He is the beginning of it, creating a new people called the church to reflect the image of God in the world. And so then Paul goes on to talk about resurrection, to talk about new creation, to talk about people becoming Christians. He says he's the head of the body. He began the church. And then he says he is also the beginning of something else. He's not only the beginning of the church, he's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now Paul has shifted, if you track with him, he's shifted from talking about how Jesus is the beginning of the church to how Jesus is the beginning of the new creation, to how Jesus is the beginning of a whole new reality, that the kingdom of God has actually come and birthed itself right into the present world. When it says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn from among the dead, it means that when he rose on Easter Sunday, he defeated death. And that the old dark world was beginning to pass away like winter and the new glorious world was beginning to invade. And now through him, these worlds have overlapped. So a Christian, we don't, what a Christian doesn't say is that this world is bad and evil and terrible and awful. And one day we're going to a wonderful world. No, what a Christian says is, yeah, this world is difficult and there are awful parts and terrible parts. But because Jesus rose, now that good, glorious, beautiful world has actually collided with our world. Do you see? Do you see, this is what Paul is saying here. Jesus Christ has raised us spiritually, Ephesians 2. We've been raised spiritually, so now the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We have new affections. We can, we can repent of our sins. We can live for him. We can actually live lives as followers of Jesus. And one day we will be physically raised. But there's a, there's a separation in time between our spiritual raising and our bodily raising. Because if you're a Christian, you're, right, you're living in between that time right now. It's like the difference between D-Day and V-Day. I've used this illustration before, but it's so helpful because this can be a confusing concept. What are you talking about? <laughs> I 
Imagine this scenario. Imagine there's a soldier in France a week or two after D-Day, and he hasn't heard about D-Day, hasn't heard about it, didn't know it happened. And say it's, say it's maybe today, so D-Day just happened June 6th, so say it's June 10th, 11th, 12th, and he finds himself in a fight, and he is not going to do what he's going to lose. And he has a lot of fear, and he thinks, this is it, I'm, I, this, is, this is it, it's going to be over here right now in France, June 12th, 1944, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, a thousand soldiers come up right behind him, and he thinks, what is happening? What, what is going on? And maybe he talks to one of the soldiers and he says, what have you, where, where, where is this? What is happening? And the soldier, maybe he says, well, D-Day happened. That's what happened. And so the other, the scared soldier, he says, well, so is the war, is the war already over? Did we win? And the other soldier would say, almost, but not quite. There's more freedom. There's more people in slavery. There's more we've got to do. And then when the odds now looked against that young soldier just a few minutes before, now he has the wind at his sails. And now they can right, take back all of Europe, and that's what happens. Right? It wasn't V-Day yet, but it was D-Day. And once the reality of that set in for that young soldier, he could live and he could actually do his job in a way he never could before. Don't you see? That's exactly what a Christian says. Imagine another scenario. You have a young woman who becomes a Christian in, in Colossae. She's 20 years old. She becomes a Christian, and she's discipled by an older woman in the faith. And she finally believes in Jesus. The, young, the older woman's been trying to convert her, trying to share the gospel with her. She's heard Epaphras talk. Maybe she's even heard Paul talk. But this, this older woman just comes into her life and says, this is the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, and it just clicks like that. And this young woman has her eyes open, and she now wants to love and serve Jesus. She believes in the resurrection. And so then imagine their interaction. Imagine the young woman says to the older woman, she says, so now, now what do we do? Can we, just, can we now just sit here and wait because Jesus is risen? And the older woman would say something like, how silly, no. Why would we sit here? Well, what are we, what are we supposed to do now? And the older woman would say, not everyone knows he's risen yet. Not everyone knows that he is the king yet. Don't you see all of the injustice don't you see all the people in their sins? Don't you see all the pain? Don't you see where you were five minutes ago? Well, yes. Our role now, Christian sister, is to go proclaim that Jesus Christ is not just Lord of your heart, he's Lord of the whole world. And that the kingdom of God has invaded our world. And you get to be a part of it. And now our mission is not to kill our enemies, it's to love our enemies. And now we're advancing, not, not just the allied troops country over country, we're advancing the kingdom of God, not with swords, but with the sword of the spirit, the Bible. Not with hate, but with justice, with prayer, with mercy. Don't you see that Paul is saying here, how is the supremacy of Jesus achieved? Isn't Jesus Christ always supreme? Yes, he's always supreme. But not everyone knows of his supremacy. Not everyone feels his kingship. Not everyone has been freed from their sins. And so as Christians, Paul is saying, as the church, you are to achieve the victory of Jesus on the cross and how you love and serve other people. That's the whole point of what Paul is saying here because the supremacy of Jesus is not an invitation to be passive and just say, he's supreme, he's the leader, so I'll just sit here. No, 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 Paul says. That's why he throws the church in here. 
He says the church is the means by which the supremacy of Jesus is going to be felt in the world. So how you live and how you love and how you serve, how you reconcile with other people is going to show the entire world that you've been raised from the dead spiritually, and yet one day you know you'll be raised physically. And that's what Paul is saying with a few words there in verse 18. He's giving them such hope, such hope. We cannot just sit here. We have to go. We have to go and proclaim the good news because there's so many people who still don't know. They still don't know. And here's, this, this just came to me, so we'll see what happens. It's not about, we can look at the world and get very afraid because we think, oh, there's so few of us. There's so much just darkness, and we can just begin to be like, what's, it's all eroding. Everything is going away. It's as bad as it's ever been. And let me just encourage you with this. It's not about the size of the Christian nation or the size of how many Christians there are. It's not even about the size of your faith. It's about the size of the Savior and how big he is and how glorious he is. Is he sufficient to fight your battles? He is. And so we can go forward because Jesus Christ said, the gates of hell would never prevail against the church. So go into the world and proclaim, I am supreme. I have risen. Then more men and women would know of it. That they would know. That they would know. That's our role. That's our job by the Spirit, not in our power. Paul puts it this way so beautifully. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. We're no longer who we used to be. Paul says, go be new creation people as the church every single day. Well, we're only halfway through. Let's keep going. Verse 19. Verse 19. Paul then talks about this. He talks about the the fullness of God. Verse 19, Paul says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him dwell in Jesus. What does that mean? It means that, that the fullness of God dwells in a person, that the presence of God, the power of God, the essence of God is now dwelling in Jesus Christ. So for the Jewish people in the first century, they no longer had to go to the temple, which was segregated racially and religiously and across gender lines, that you can only be a certain type of person to even have access to God. And that's where you found God. Now, Paul says, no longer, no longer do you have to go to the temple to experience the fullness of God. It's in Jesus. And to the first century pagans, which just means people that weren't Jewish or were not Christians, you don't have to look to the sky God or to the sun God. All of the fullness you seek is found in one man, Jesus Christ. He is the revelation of God. And what does that mean for us? It means that you and I are hardwired to be filled with God. There is a hole in our hearts the length of eternity. And all of us are made and wired to seek fullness. And we seek it in all kinds of ways. Right? My resume is going to make me full. This romantic relationship is going to make me full. If my parents finally just tell me they're proud of me, that's going to make me full. If my kids achieve everything in life, that's going to make me full. And we're, we, we all, we, no one just sits there saying, I'm fine being unfull. I'm fine being empty. I'm okay just, just longing for everything and just never getting it. No, we're always trying to fill the hole in our hearts. And what Paul says is the fullness you seek, the fullness you long for, is found only in God. And the way now that fullness of God can get in your life is through a relationship with Jesus. Because all the fullness of God dwells in him. And if you know him, you know God. And you're filled. And you're full. And you're satisfied. St. Augustine said this. He said, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. 
We are restless creatures until we find rest in the one that made us. And Paul says, all the fullness you seek is found in one man. It's found in him. Don't, don't look to other things. Don't, I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart and seal it that I would always taste of your fullness and not have to run towards other things. Paul's reminding the Colossians here because there are other teachers in the church who've come in who said, yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus can fill you up halfway. Wonderful, well, and good. But there's more fullness over here if you do this festival. There's more fullness over here if you believe in this philosophy. This, this empty Christianity is very boring. It's very simple. Simple people get it. So this can't be actually what the plan is. So we're going to add to it, which once again means you're actually subtracting from it. Paul says no. Fullness is found in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, and for Jesus Christ. And to live with him and in him is to find fullness in your life. To be able to exhale every night and just say, it's okay. And he can't put a price on that. The final verse here in this, in this hymn, this poem, is a beautiful one. Paul has just said that God was pleased. He delighted to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself, to God, all things. We can just circle how many times we see all things in this passage. It's fairly important. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, which just means everything, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is one of my favorite verses, so I'll just confess right here. This, this could get crazy. Um, what Paul is saying here is that in the beginning, God made everything through Jesus Christ, and in the end, God is going to reconcile everything through Jesus Christ. What he began through Jesus, he will recreate and finish through Jesus Christ. Everything, everything, everything. Listen to this. The heart of God beats for reconciliation. The heart, God's heart beats for people to be reconciled to him, for people to be reconciled horizontally, and for the entire earth to be reconciled to God. God's heart beats for it. It beats for it. And so the whole purpose of the life of Jesus is that everything would be reconciled back to God. And so Paul here is presupposing that things are not reconciled. Right? It's not in the text, but we know if we've read the scriptures that sin has broken and fractured everything. And so now there's not reconciliation. There's brokenness. There's all things which have gone wrong. And Paul says, but the point of Jesus is to reconcile all of that. It's to bring all of that together again in beautiful harmony. That's why he lived. That's why he died. That's why he rose. That's why he's coming in to restore and reconcile everything. That's the point of his life and what he's doing even now, interceding for us. And so three quick things here on, on what this passage teaches about reconciliation. It's personal, it's relational, and it's universal. It's cosmic. It's personal, it's relational, it's universal. So number one, it's personal, and this is the central point here. And this is what Paul is going to outline here in verses 21 through 23. He says this, he says, Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Verse 22. But now, another glorious but there of the Bible, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, establish and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. And so Paul is saying here, every single human needs to be reconciled to God, that our hearts are broken and bent, and we put the crown on our head. And the only way for us to be healed is to be reconciled to God. But God did all the work because what God demands, God provides. He demands perfection and he provides it in the substitute Jesus Christ. And so now if we know him, if we're in a relationship with him, if we've repented of our sins and turned and put the crown back on his head where it always and already is, then we're reconciled to God. Then we're adopted. 
we're sons and daughters. And now we have a new heart. We're new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That's the first and most important step of reconciliation, that God wants to get his family back. He wants to get his children back. And how does that happen? By the blood on the cross. So now we see the cosmic creator becomes the bleeding savior. And that God overall, the Gospel of John puts it this way, the word of God became flesh. Let's put it more provocatively. The word of God became killable. You, you could kill him. And humans with the chance, we did. We did. And yet by his blood, he has made peace. He has made peace between us and God. So now when we're standing in the presence of God, our hearts can be at rest. That's 1 John. We can be at rest because we've been reconciled. And so Paul's just saying here, the whole purpose is that he could present you, he could present you without blemish, holy and free from accusation of the enemy, that you're not worthy, that you didn't do enough good things. None of that matters because you stand on grace. You stand on what Jesus Christ did for you. And then Paul adds the if statement here. He says, if you continue in your faith, establish and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Now, what that's not saying is that you can never lose your salvation. You can't. If the Holy Spirit actually comes in your life, he doesn't then leave at some point. Right? Once the Holy Spirit's in, he's sealed. It's done. What Paul's saying here, though, is if you've truly, genuinely come to faith in Christ, your life will bear fruit over a season of time. And so that's always the check. Is my life bearing fruit? Have I truly repented? Do I have affection for the Lord? It's not saying now you're perfect. Now you never sin. Now you never struggle. I hope not. I will not be a part of any kingdom of God happening, if that's true. What Paul is saying is that not so much even that you're sinning less, but are you repenting more? Is your heart warm to the things of, of God? Are you stable? Are you steadfast? Are you faithful? Even when you fall, his grace is there. Why? Because Paul says this is the whole hope held out in the gospel, that God made the first move, knowing everything we would do. So reconciliation is personal. It's by the blood of Jesus. It's by the blood of Jesus. Secondly, it's relational. It's relational. It's not only between us and God, though it's central. It's then it wants to work itself outward. That's why Paul spends time talking about the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, that they would actually sit together at one table and not have the Jewish church and the Gentile church. That is a fail. That is not a win. And so in the United States, uh, an example would be black and white where we're often separated. And, and Sunday morning remains the most segregated hour in, in, in the country. Which Paul, if he were here, would just say, what? Was I not clear? That you should be reconciled to your brother or to your sister. You should be reconciled. Why? Because you've been reconciled by God to go be a reconciler. So blacks and whites and... You, you run through it. In any, any, whatever it is, heaven is going to be populated by people of every race and every ethnicity. And so Paul says, so let's get to work on seeing that happen now. Why? Because we're people of heaven living on earth. Let's get to work doing that. It's hard work. It's difficult work. It's just we don't naturally want to do it, but that's why we have the Holy Spirit to help us, that we would be reconciled towards our brothers and sisters. We would actually love them. We'd actually love them, that we could be a part of one body, Jesus's body. So it's, it's relational. It goes out and out and out towards all people that we would be reconciled together. And finally, it's universal, which doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. But it also doesn't mean this, that humans are the only object of God's reconciliation. We're central, but it's not only that. Paul does not say, and through Jesus, to reconcile to himself humans. 
humans are included in it, but that all of God's creation has now been subjected to slavery and futility. That's Romans 8. And what does it say? That all of creation in the pains of childbirth is waiting for the slavery to lift. And in a new heaven and new earth, it will lift. So it's not just humans on clouds forever and ever and ever. And clouds are somehow the only thing which is allowed in the new creation. So you may be asking one of the most important questions you could ever ask. <sighs> Do all dogs go to heaven? <laughs> I know you are. I know you're thinking. I can see some of you. I know it's what you're thinking about. Let me say this. Um, I don't know. <laughs> but I think so. Now, if you ask me, do all cats go to heaven? I had a different answer. No. I, I'm sorry. As always, I look forward to your cat emails. Thank you. Thank you in advance for those. Why do I say that? It's a funny question, right? But here's what I mean. Dogs, cats, trees, rocks, whales, oceans, everything was made by God. And all of that somehow, some way, will be in the new heaven and new earth. Humans will be at the center of it, reconciled to God. But in the new Jerusalem, there will be everything that we long for. But we won't be looking for our dog or our cat and saying, oh, I'm so glad that you're here. It may be wonderful that they're there. But you will be thinking about Jesus Christ and him being there. A plus, a very, very small plus, is that there will be trees, and there will be oceans, and there will be forests, because all of it is God's. Creation is not bad and going to get rid of. That's what the false teachers said. They said, creation is bad, your body is bad. They must not have ever read the Bible, because Paul says, your body is good, it's going to last forever, and creation is good, it's going to be redeemed. Because all of it is for Jesus Christ. Do you, do you live like that? Do you think about that? It actually matters how we treat the earth. Now, I'm not saying we have to worship the earth or worship trees, but I am saying that we shouldn't scorch it. We shouldn't destroy it because it's God. We should steward the earth. We should care about the earth. Why? Because God made it. Not because it is a God, but because it's made by God. The world, we all, the world that we all want is coming. Paul says it's coming. Jesus Christ on the cross through his blood, he already put the down payment down for the world that all of our hearts are longing for. Peace, rest, laughter, wine, food, all races, only joy, seeing his face, being known by him, being loved by him forever and ever and ever. Jesus Christ, by his blood, he is making that happen. And what the church's role is, is to say, even now, Lord, let us get a taste of it. Let us get a taste of spring right in the heart of winter. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Right there, there it is right there. It's, it's personal. He's not counting our sins against us. If you're in Christ, a new creation has has already come. It's relational that he's committed to us, the people of God, the message of reconciliation, and it's universal and it's cosmic. He was reconciling through Christ the whole world back to himself. And Paul just said, it's, you, you are messengers now of reconciliation. You are those who reconcile other people by the power of the gospel. That is what Jesus is talking about, and that is what the blood of Jesus achieves for us. And so finishing here with the last two verses, just quickly, we can't even go into those other verses. So 
Next time, maybe. Um, 28 and 29, Paul says, Jesus Christ, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. The first part of the 28 there. He is the one we proclaim. And I hope at this point in the message, you are clearly saying, how can we not? Who else are we going to talk about? Who can bear the burden of your heart? Who can bear the burden of your soul? Who can bear the burden of reconciling the whole world together? Who else are we going to talk about in church? What else are we doing here but to proclaim Jesus and who he is? He is the image of the invisible God. To look at him is to see who God is. He gives us our humanity back so we can now reflect him in the world. The people could come to actually know him. Everything was made in him and through him and for him and by him. All of it moves to him. He controls everything. Everything adheres to him. He has reconciled our hearts. He's reconciled us to each other. He's reconciled the entire world by the blood of what he shed on the cross. Who else are we going to to be talking about. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the firstborn. And one day, every single knee will bow before him and confess that he truly is the Lord. And Paul says, the weight of your preaching, the weight of your church, everything in your life should say one thing. We proclaim Jesus Christ, who was and is and is to come. Jesus Christ, Son of God. And I love what Paul says here. He says, our goal is not just to have converts, It presents all of you mature. And I love what he says at the end, and all this work I'm doing is only the Holy Spirit working in me. You may say, how can we do this? How can we be the church like this? This is too big for us. I'll say it again, it is too big for you. But the Holy Spirit working inside all of us can actually achieve all of these things. Are you willing? Are you able? So as an individual, as the people of God, let's always proclaim Jesus. Let's press in to know him more. And let's, let's live and die for the peace that he lived and died for. That the world would know this is who Jesus is. Let me pray for us. Father, Father, I hope I got out of the way of this passage. I hope that we could just get a taste of what you are proclaiming your son is in this passage. And I pray for everyone here that whether we love Jesus or don't know anything about Jesus, we would always come back to this beautiful section, this beautiful hymn, where we would, we would say again and again, this is who Jesus is. This is who he is. How sweet is his name? How mighty is his name? How glorious is his name? A strong tower, a defender. And he became vulnerable and weak. And at the center of the universe is the death of an innocent victim that we could be reconciled to God. So Father, I pray for everyone here that we would know, love, and serve you, and that if nothing else, we might leave here saying, amazing Jesus, how majestic, how beautiful. Oh, to know and follow him all of my life. In his mighty name, and all God's people said, amen.